Please be advised that I am not a professional in any topics that matter when it comes to what I discuss. Feel free to send your comments, questions, suggestions, and corrections to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Living Through Extinction. I'm Ruby Palmer, and this is episode 23. situation here in Hawaii earlier this evening. The uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami the threat. sky turns black as giant tornadoes touch down from Nebraska to Texas. Apocalyptic scenes as twisters tear through the southern... To start off my skepticism segment this week, I would like to point you towards an enlightening documentary about social media. It is called The Social Dilemma and can be viewed on Netflix. Take a more skeptical look at your habits and how they are affecting the way you think. It's not good news, folks. That's The Social Dilemma on Netflix. At least it's on Netflix in Canada right now. I presume it's available elsewhere as well. Moving on to yet another bullshit video put out by someone looking to cause unrest and that people are watching and sharing without skeptical thinking. So, some dumbass decided to make a video stating that infrared thermometers can cause harm to a person's pineal gland. Newsflash! They can't. Of course, the video got 2 million views and a great deal of these people likely not only believed it, but spread it to other non-skeptical people who would also believe it, and they spread it to more non-skeptical people who also believe it, and so on and so on. An infrared thermometer does not even shoot anything at you when it reads your temperature. To believe that is simply a fundamental misunderstanding of what they are and how they work. Have you ever had the opportunity to try out a pair of infrared goggles? If not, I'm sure you have seen infrared video and or goggles being shown on television and in the movies. These aren't movie tech only. The technology exists and it has been around for a long time, but nothing is shot out from these devices. They are reading the infrared radiation that comes off of us all. These readings tell us the temperatures of what we are seeing. A range of colors have been assigned to the temperatures and what we view are funny human-shaped colorful forms moving around. It's a super cool technology. This isn't a tech segment, so I'm not going to go into the history of infrared discovery or anything here. Just understand that we use this method to be able to see in temperatures. It is the people we are seeing who are the ones that are emitting something. So these infrared thermometers, they were built on the same technology. They do not shoot out anything at all. They are merely measuring the infrared radiation from the surface of your body. But these handy handheld items translate the information into a temperature number readout rather than as temperature colors for viewing. One last time, in case someone hasn't quite gotten it yet, there is no possible way for the pineal gland to be harmed by an infrared thermometer. Be skeptical, damn it. Hey, did you know that a recent study shows that there are several cities in the United States which could very well grow all their food within 250 kilometers? Can you imagine? That would cut down on so many things, wouldn't it? The first thing that comes to my mind is transport. Nothing travels more than 250 kilometers? That would be an incredible cutback from the amount of travel a lot of US food goes through before reaching plates today. And it would be so fresh, oh my gosh, every single thing you eat would be fresher and have less of an impact on the environment. 
This study is out of Tufts University and was published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. They were able to build upon earlier research into the composition of diets where resource demands had been calculated based on the various diets of modern Americans. Their variations ranged from vegan to a diet with a high meat intake and they considered populations, geography, and diets in their calculations. A direct quote from UPI.com, one of the places where I read about the study. If consumers, policymakers, and other stakeholders decided to prioritize local food, cities throughout the Midwest and Pacific Midwest could feed their residents with food grown within 150 miles, end quote. I know I personally am not ready to give up meat, but I'm sure I could cut it down. The study says that if meat consumption were to go from 5 ounces per day per person to 2.5 ounces per day per person, the potential for local supply is increased. I'd be okay with that. I'm sure that's not the case for everyone, though. We're all different. Now, this isn't anything that could be done overnight or widespread at this time. Most cities would still need to bring in food. Many would still have to bring in food even if everyone in the city were to go vegetarian. But there are 378 metropolitan areas in the United States that are located in places where they could make it work. What a worthy goal to strive for. It's actually kind of often I come across animals that make me think, are we really the smartest creatures on the planet here? These birds are another example of animals that in some ways I think may be smarter than people. The study, which was published in Nature Climate Change and funded by the U.S. National Science Foundation and conducted by University of Montana biologists, showed that songbirds reduce reproduction during droughts. Multiple years were spent studying 38 different species of tropical songbirds to come to these results. They were correct in their calculation for choosing their field sites as each one fortunately experienced one drought per year during their studies. What they have found is that those species who kept regular breeding habits throughout severe droughts saw strong reductions in survival. On the other hand, the songbirds which reduce reproduction during severe droughts appear to have increased survival rates. In fact, those which reduce breeding activity in hard times end up with even higher survival rates than non-drought years. In my head, these results make perfect sense and I wish humans would pay more attention. We are awful for unnecessarily enormous families. If you stop and think rationally for a moment, it's obvious that the greater a population in an area is, the less food and other resources will be available for all. That goes for birds, humans, wolves, whatever. We could learn a thing or two from these birds. Also learned during this long study, quote, understanding behavioral responses to drought is critical for predicting population responses, unquote. And, quote, many longer-lived species may be more resilient to drought impacts of climate change than previously expected, unquote. And finally, quote, our results provide support to the idea that reproduction can affect survival. This idea of a cost of reproduction is central to life history theory, but only rarely documented in wild populations. Unquote. Overall, a massive study with lots of parts to it. But I found the survival rates of those songbirds who put off reproducing during droughts to be the most interesting and the most relevant to our situation on the planet today. Monk seals are listed as endangered. There are only about 1,400 of them living on Hawaiian islands right now. The babies are at extremely high risk of being killed. 
Their mothers abandon them just five to seven weeks after birth, after the seal pup has fattened up really well. The pups live off of these fat stores for some time and gradually, over time, they make more and more, longer and longer excursions into the water for food. At this point in time, they are extremely vulnerable. There is absolutely nothing protecting them and they are just starting to learn how to feed themselves. Because of all this, their greatest threats are sharks and entanglements in debris, but declining food sources and other things are also issues. Wildlife managers made the decision to translocate pups from the dangerous shores where they had been abandoned to locations where they were expected to still be able to obtain food but be safer overall. Translocations are rarely used in marine mammals, but in this case it's very good that they gave it a shot. It appears to have worked. Marine biologists with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's National Marine Fisheries Services said there were way higher survival rates as a result. The study is published in Animal Conservation. If they keep doing this, maybe they will be able to grow the population out of its endangered status one day. Fast food. That was the subject I chose to look into the environmental impacts of for this episode. Fast food is bad. From production to transport to storage to storefronts, the combined impact is quite large. In 2019, FAIR, F-A-I-R-R, that stands for Farm Animal Investment Risk and Return, put out a report that said the fast food industry could be having a catastrophically catalytic effect on global warming. They identified three main ways the industry is bad for the environment. The use of land, the consumption of water, and the emission of greenhouse gases. For the land use, meat and dairy farms are often promoting deforestation and diverting resources. For the water consumption, it is estimated that the fast food industry uses as much as 10% of global water flows. And as for emissions, those come from all over the place. There's the wheat growing, cattle feeding, slaughter, pickling of cucumbers, methane from cows, heat, air, and all other energy consumption from all the separate locations, and transportation. Apparently, a lot of McDonald's meat served in the U.S. are coming from Australia and New Zealand. But that's not even close to all. There is also water contamination. Pathogens, hormones, drugs, and fertilizer seep into water supplies. According to One Green Planet, quote, Outbreaks of waterborne illness including E. coli, marine life dead zones, and numerous other hazards can all be contributed to fast food, unquote. Then there is the massive amount of grease that needs to be disposed of properly. When this is not done right, it gets into pipes and the general water supply and has even been known to get into bodies of water like ponds, causing major wildlife difficulties. There are styrofoam plates, paper cups, wax coffee cups, paper bags which are often way larger than necessary, inside that bag are often more little bags, paper wraps, cardboard boxes, straws. So we have to take into account the production and transportation emissions and the resource usage for all of these items as well if we are looking at the full picture. Of course, that's not all the problems when it comes to these packaging items. People are selfish assholes and fast food, drinks, chips, candy and other snacks make up 40% of all litter. And fast food itself counts for about 10% of all waste being produced. I don't know, it seems like fast food restaurants should have to have cleanup initiatives to make up for this or something. 
I'm pretty sure some of the bigger companies do have some cleanup initiatives, but it almost seems like it should be mandated. Also, the food wastage itself, also very high with fast food. While mostly gone from most places, styrofoam takes 900 years to break down in a landfill. Oh, and quick side note. Did you know that styrofoam is capitalized? I was getting frustrated at my word program because it kept autocorrecting the word styrofoam, which to me is just a word. I finally looked it up, and it's true. It is capitalized. Apparently it's a proprietary name, like Kleenex, I guess? It's apparently a decades-old trademark of the Dow Chemical Company. Anyway, sorry. That bothered me, and so I had to include it. Continuing on. I tried, but could not find stats about the number of fries containers used or number of fries ordered or sold per day or per year for McDonald's or any other company. What I did find for McDonald's is that they sell 9 million pounds of fries globally per day. So that is a massive amount of cardboard fry containers. I don't think I could picture it if I tried. An article titled Fast Cars, Fast Foods, Hyperconsumption and Its Health and Environmental Consequences states, quote, It is a mode that is rooted in individualized private convenience, and it is implicated in a number of growing public health and environmental problems, including obesity and climate change, unquote. It goes on to say that this mode of consumption emerged in the U.S. after World War II and after the mass production of food and development of interstate highway systems for transportation of said food were put together. So what is on us? What should we be doing? Being aware of things is a start. Use a refillable mug for drinks when possible. Don't fucking litter! Apparently there are companies working to develop beverage cups which either don't require a plastic lid or have the plastic couple lining easily removable. Another option, now I don't like this option, but I still have to mention it, bans of drive-through windows, or having drive-through windows be for disabled persons only. Don't get me wrong, I love the convenience. I am also an introvert, and if I have the option to not go inside, I will take it. But in truth, I'm part of the problem. Idling is a big issue, and the combined times all vehicles are spending in drive-through lines adds up. From what I've read though, even in cities where there are anti-idling bylaws, drive-thrus are still allowed and the idling at those is ignored. It would be pretty inconvenient for me and my husband too if drive-thrus were banned, but I guess we'd survive. I'd like to share a little something that made me smile the other day. I came across this cute story at HuffPost.com. A student in Malaysia woke up one morning to find his cell phone's case under the bed with no phone in it. The phone itself was nowhere to be found. He borrowed his brother's phone in order to call the device and go out searching for his phone. And it worked! He found it covered in mud under a palm tree in the jungle behind his house. When he pulled up his images, there were pictures and videos that had been taken before the phone had been abandoned. They were of trees, the sky, and a monkey! A very curious monkey was on many of those pictures and videos. Yes, many are blurry, but some are quite fun. One of the videos appears to be recording as the primate is attempting to eat the phone. I love it. Animals are the funniest. That brings things to a close for episode 23. Thank you for listening, and may your health and sanity be replenished daily in these mad times. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro-outro for the podcast. And thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for their musical contributions on the violin and guitar. I hope you will join me again in two weeks for episode 24 of Living Through Extinction.
If you like what you just heard and would like to support the show, you can do so by liking, subscribing, commenting when reviewing, following Living Through Extinction on social media, or sharing the show with your friends. There is also a Patreon account under Living Through Extinction where you can earn stickers, magnets, and masks, and help to plant trees. Any support shown for the show is very much appreciated. situation here in Hawaii earlier this evening. The uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami threat. The sky turns black as giant tornadoes touch down. From Nebraska to Texas, apocalyptic scenes as twisters tear through the southern plains.